This episode is brought to you by Fooley Gemstones. I liked writing Belle Perone designing the jewelry, best of anything in the book. I just loved imagining her. I mean, I spent so much time with the two books and all the jewelry and visiting every auction house and looking at the jewelry in person as much as I could from collectors that I just so fell in love with the jewelry that it was such a pleasure to write that part of the book. I'm Carol Holton, the voice of jewelry. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm an author and broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas and forgotten histories. So join me as I tell sparkly tales and meet all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture, and investigate what's happening now. Hello, MJ. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's quite an honor. I've been a fan for a long, long time. Well, we wanted to talk to you about your amazing new bestseller, The Jeweler of Stolen Dreams. We want to talk about the life of the master jeweler, Suzanne Belperon, how her life has inspired other people. I mean, her bravery during the war, her jewelry style, but as well as writers like you, MJ. And I want to know, first of all, what it was that really attracted you to take her life as a point of inspiration? Well, it was a few things. Um, A long time ago, like in 2009, I believe, really before anybody was talking about her, I was in Paris and went to see Lydia Cortez's little gem of a jewelry store. And in the window were these two amazing cuff bracelets, diamonds and gold, that were very Art Deco and just amazing looking. And Lydia told me that they were done by somebody named Suzanne Belperon and that uh, Karl Lagerfeld had started collecting her pins. And uh, Lydia didn't know very much about her. She bought things at auction. She didn't know very much about her. The cuffs were so powerful and interesting. And I had read a lot about cuffs being symbols of female empowerment and feminism that when I got home, I looked up Suzanne Belperon to see who she was, and there was almost nothing literally about her. And it was how little there was about her that first intrigued me in finding out more about her and writing about her. But it was a very long time before there was anything that you could get a hold of because of the privacy laws in France, all of her papers were and still are under lock and key, And it's up to Olivier Barillon, who has those papers, to release what he wants. And when he wrote his book, that was really the first real in-depth look that I could get at her life. And in his book, he reprinted some of the letters that Suzanne wrote and Bernard, well, actually, that Bernard Hers wrote to her during the war. And I had those letters translated from the book. And it was reading what was written in the letters was so intriguing that I continued to do research, which ultimately led me to somebody who no one's talked to, who is uh, Suzanne Belperon's great niece, who helped me greatly find out what she did do in the war, what she actually did in the war, which isn't in any of the books, and which is not public. So that was sort of the evolution of how I got intrigued and what I eventually wound up doing. 
So what year did you go to Lydia Cortez's store? I think that was 2009. So they were still sort of vaguely affordable at that point, were they? Uh, not me. Because <laughs> <laughs> now they're just inaffordable. They are too. now, no. And I, mm. I really regret that I didn't, uh, you know, take money out of the bank and buy those bracelets because they were amazing, as were all the pieces that Lydia had. And she still has some of the pieces. When I started writing the book, I asked her if I could see what she still had. And she still, she kept some pieces. First of all, I can see, which the listeners won't be able to see, but we might put a picture up on Instagram and online to show them where you write, because you are surrounded by jewellery and crystals. And I wanted to know, where did this interest come from in jewellery? Well, I think it really was something that started when I was in the crib. (laughs) because my mother and grandmother both really, really loved jewelry and all the early pictures of me, you know, those baby pictures with the naked bottoms. I always have uh, baby pearls, you know, plastic pearls around my neck and bracelets up and down my arms. So I think it was very much part of my family heritage and not something I really thought about writing about until actually it was very early. It was my, my third book, I think, where I was thinking about what I wanted my main character to be. And I'd always just loved jewelry so much. And I thought, oh, I'm going to make her a jeweler. And then I can do all this research into actually making jewelry. And that was in probably 2001. So which book was that? Oh, that's that's a book called Infidelity that isn't uh, not a famous jeweler. She's a fictional character who happens to make jewelry. But I really loved writing about it. And later on... Um, in a book called The Secret Language of Stones was my first book where I really completely uh, embraced writing about a character who was a, a jeweler. And I even went to, that. I did. that's when I started really doing serious research. I went to L'Ecole uh, Van Cleef School in Paris for two weeks and took every single class that they offered. <laughs> and I, st- I had wanted to work with a jeweler at home. I live near New York, but because of insurance laws, no jeweler would let me into their workshop to really watch them, which was very frustrating. So there was a limited amount that I could learn just asking people to, you know, or looking at jewelry or literally going like back to college, which I wasn't going to do. So I spent those weeks in Paris and then I got closer to some jewelers who gave me more information. Deidre Featherstone being one that really did help me a lot understanding the mind of a jewelry designer. And the secret language of stones takes place at the right after World War One, and she's a jeweler who actually has some magical abilities. It's my favorite book. I truly fell in love with writing about and doing the research into jewelry because she studies with uh, the character Opaline, studies with somebody who studied, who worked in Fabergé's studio. She's imaginary, but the, obviously Fabergé's studio is not imaginary. And I started doing so much research into Fabergé's studio. And I know that you know that this always happens. You know, you're researching one thing and you find out 72 other things and put them in a folder for another book. So it was while researching that book that I learned about this lost tiara that uh, had been a Romanov tiara that's been lost since uh, 1922, I think, or 21. And that led to a a full-length book. So at this point, they're just all all the books have something to do with jewellery. So what do you think when you said you were interested by the mind of a jewellery designer? What is different about the mind of a jewellery designer? Well, I went to school to be a painter, 
I went to college to get a Bachelor of Fine Arts, and I was a terrible painter. I was also, I had always been writing, but I, I really had wanted to be a painter. I was a terrible painter. And when I got out of school, I went into advertising because you have to get a job. But I started writing, and I started writing about painting a lot. And um, I realized that one of the things I could do as a writer was I could write the things I couldn't paint, or and I could write about painters. And painters and jewelers are really artists. They're both the same. I think jewelry is just not just anything, but jewelry is another form of art. And so a jeweler is very similar to not just a painter, but a sculptor. What really um, brought it all home to me was that jewelry is really miniature sculpture. It's also miniature architecture, and it's also miniature painting. And all those things were things I'd been very involved with and written about architects and painters and sculptors and very much grew up in Manhattan, going to art galleries and museums. I always joke around that the Metropolitan Museum is really the only church I've ever belonged to. We lived across the street when I was growing up, and my mother hated the playground and the other mothers and children, so she'd take me to the Met instead. I started taking art classes there when I was five years old because they offered them. But jewelry really is all of those things combined, and I think that that's why it ultimately became so satisfying to me to write about jewelers. Well, I'm going to quote you um, writing in the book about how Suzanne Belperon worked. I think it's just really lovely. You say, dipping my sable brush in a jar of water, I stroke it across the zinc white dollop on the glass plate I use as a palette. I paint a small white circle representing a diamond and then another and another. Seeing an idea rendered in two dimensions is the first step to bringing it to life. Gouache on light grey cardstock, sharp lines to delineate facts, highlights to suggest shine of diamonds. And I think actually if somebody reads this, they get an idea of actually how, obviously your intention, to show how a jewellery designer thinks, how they express their idea as an art form first in paint and then turn it into a sculpture. Yeah, it's really interesting because I've t I've talked to quite a few jewelers who do obviously who do their own designs on paper with gouache. Belle Perron studied jewelry at school starting when she was uh, 17 years old and learned all those methods of painting her designs in gouache on paper, which is still what so many designers do to create a piece. It's still how so many of them work. I took a class in painting jewelry and in, in doing those gouache drawings because I thought they were, they're so beautiful. And I was so terrible at those too. Where was that? At the Van Cleef School? No, it was online. At the Van Cleef School, you do, you, I did take one there too, but that was just a day. That was just a two hour one. During COVID, during the pandemic and being locked at home, I took a lot of online classes. And one was a six week class in learning how to paint jewelry with gouache and uh, it's just awful. But but I love paint and I love holding paintbrushes. So <laughs> no one ever has to see them. So it's okay. You could write your books with a paintbrush maybe. <laughs> I wrote one book by hand. Did you? Yeah. I, I wrote a book that had um, Victor Hugo as a character and it had his journals in it. I've started writing the book and realized what ridiculous hubris I had that I thought I could write anything like Victor Hugo. So I wanted to, I tried to sell the book back to the publisher and my agent wouldn't let me. And he said, you're going to figure this out because if you read Victor Hugo's letters, they're not 
Victor Hugo's books. You could write a journal and not be like horribly embarrassed, but I couldn't do it. What actually happened was I was sitting here at this computer and next to my desk, I have all these old pens, these old fountain pens. And I knocked them over onto the computer and I looked at the fountain pen and I thought, oh my God, maybe the problem is I'm trying to write like Victor Hugo's journal on a computer. So I took the fountain pen, got a, got a journal out of my desk as I collect them and started writing his journal in ink, in a you know, in ink on paper and was able to actually channel it and write the whole book that way. And then I called the agent and I said, okay, I finished the book. Now you have to find me somebody who can transcribe all this writing onto the computer. And he said, yes, that somebody is you. That's how you'll edit the book. <laughs> and after doing it once, I'll never do it again because it was torture. Never again. So you have to write it twice. 100,000 words, typing them into a computer. Anyway, very romantic way. It must be an, a romantic book to have written. Yes, it is. Um, <laughs> where else did you go to research her life? You talked to her niece. Did you travel to Besançon when she grew up? I didn't. I did not go there. I spent a lot of time in Paris mm -hmm. um, because the book was really focused on a very short period of time in her life, just during World War II. I didn't feel the need to go see her home. But I walked all the streets where uh, the atelier was and where her home was. I, I actually couldn't get in because those places aren't open to the public. I mean, there are other businesses and apartments now. And I used the books. I mean, there's the um, Belperon book by the Ladrigans and Olivier's book. And that really had all the basics between the two books. You do have all the basics, but it was really, it was really her niece. The optical research was important for you to feel those streets and look at those apartment blocks. Yeah, I'm very visceral that way with all the books. I really need as much as I can to like immerse myself in the world of the characters. I also actually found out that I owned a Belle Perron ring, which was a completely bizarre story. My grandmother had a diamond and ruby pinky ring that from the time I was little was my favorite piece of her jewelry. And we were estranged. But when she died, I was able to buy the ring from a relative who was about to sell it, but I was able to buy it, not having any idea who the designer was. And it was only when I started doing the research on the book that I saw similar ring and then was able to find out that either my ring was either made by Boivin later based on a Belperon design or during, but all the markings in my ring were destroyed when the ring was sized by someone who didn't know. But everybody that I've shown it to, it's such a classic design. It's a, a dome ring with a uh, rose. It's such a classic design that Boivin made. And uh, Primavera Gallery in New York had exactly the ring. And they said there's no question that it was a Belperin ring. So that was pretty amazing. So I wore the ring the whole time I was writing mm -hmm. the book, which was not much of a hardship. A lot of the rubies, there's a row of rubies, they're cracked. It's not very valuable, especially because all the markings have been obliterated by the soldering of whoever fixed it. But it was an amazing thing to, I mean, isn't that crazy that I'd own this ring? My grandmother had owned this ring. She, she'd been in Europe a lot. She also bought a lot of things at auctions. So it was very likely that she'd either bought it in the 50s or 60s in Europe directly, or she bought it at an auction in America. But it was just nuts that it's like I owned it all along. So you were kind of meant to write this book to find that out. Yes. <laughs> and then I want to know, how do you 
separate the factual part of her life to the fiction. And was that your strategy to have the kind of modern day tale running along the path so you could keep both parts separate? This was the hardest book I've ever written because I've never written a book where the main character was somebody who was real. In the Victor Hugo book that I mentioned, there was like 80 pages of his journals, but he wasn't the main character. And it was based on very easy information about the seances that he uh, gave. But this was really, by focusing on these two years of her life, it was really her life. And it was really based on who she was. And it was really, it had to be really factual as much as I could make it factual. And it was very difficult because I just couldn't get the information. It's just a lot of information that we just don't know. Like, what was her relationship with her husband like? We know that she had this affair. There's no question about the affair. And we know that she never divorced her husband and that he had a bedroom in her apartment his whole life. So you have to figure out how to put that together. And there's nobody who can give you any information. Even her niece who talked to her grandfather and her grandfather was Suzanne Belperon's husband's nephew. So and he they knew I mean, she the affair was was well known, but it was also so it, it was not what one would imagine. For instance, Belperon asked her in-laws, Jean Belperon's parents, to hide Bernard Hers, her lover, in their apartment more than once to hide him from the Nazis. And they did. So you get a piece of information like that, and it's it's really confusing in 1920 to figure out, okay, I know it's France, and I know people are much more open, but still, you know, what was the... She married Jean when she was 21, and they'd grown up in the same town. So you start putting together, well, they were friends and he was friends of her brothers. You start putting things together, but you really don't want to invent something and not be true to what really happened or dishonor her or present something that's going to put her in a bad light. So that, that became a, a pretty heavy burden, which is why there's not that much in the book that's about that personally exp explains her personal choices any more than I had to to make her come to life. It was m much more um, to focus rather on her as a jeweler and what she did in the resistance, which is also not 100. We don't know 100 percent what she did, but we do know that Harry Winston did do what we have Belle Perron do in the book to some extent. And we know that she knew Harry Winston and we know he offered her a job as did Paul Flato. When I made up what she did in the resistance, the part about selling the jewels, everybody was doing that, every art dealer. Well, I actually don't want to give it away too much because it's sort of a surprise. Yeah, that is that is true. But it was sort of using jewelry to save lives. Yes, and art gallery owners were using paintings to save. Everybody who, in the resistance and all the good guys in France, Everybody was helping to try to get people out of Europe. And so um, we know that she was in the resistance. She, we know that she won the Legion of Honor medal. There's no question about that. We do know that she, that she had her in-laws protect people in their apartment. So it wasn't too much of a leap. Um, and as I said, Harry Winston did do some of what she has is doing in the book. But um, the reason I put so much of that in the present is because I don't know. So that that's getting back to your question about the two timelines. By having the two timelines, I could have an intriguing, suspenseful story 
that takes place in the present that supposes what happened in the past without dishonoring. Yes. So you have this this story of this young girl um, on a sort of investigative mission, and it all sort of coalesces at the end. But um, one's in the present, one's in the past. And which which did you enjoy writing the, the most? Did you like the present or the past? Oh, that's an interesting question. I liked writing Belle Perron designing the jewelry best of anything in the book. I just loved imagining her. I mean, I spent so much time with the two books and all the jewelry and visiting every auction house and looking at the jewelry in person as much as I could from collectors that I just so fell in love with the jewelry that it was such a pleasure to write that part of the book. Do you think you're a frustrated jewelry designer? There's some part of you that might be. Well, the same way I'm a frustrated painter, but I don't have ideas of what I would design. You know, actually, if I did, that would be a much easier thing to do than being a painter because I could find a designer and I could do a bad sketch and she could do a better one. But um, no, I think I'm just, I just am in love with creative people. And um, you tracked down her niece, so that must have been quite difficult. And did her niece say that she, she obviously was a very quiet, private person. So I guess that has meant there's not that much information about her. Yes, um, I tracked down her niece, like it took hours online. Nobody told me about her. Just taking every, I had Jean Belperon's name. And so I found him online and then... It, there was something that said he had brothers. So I found out the names of the brothers and then I, and then I looked up all the brothers and then it turns out she lives 20 miles from me in Connecticut, which is just so crazy. She was so helpful and she had, she knew Suzanne Belperon. I mean, she'd gone to her house when she'd gone to France to visit her grandmother. Belperon had teas and dinners and she knew her as if she was an elderly woman, not the niece. Belle Perron when she knew her and she did describe her that way as very elegant refined and and loving and open but quiet and everybody said that about her she was very enigmatic and mysterious and you know there are all these journals and all these letters that exist in France that Olivier has so he knows the real truth but I don't think, but I think most of what he has is, you know, they're all, he has receipts of every client she ever had and he has every drawing she has and he has all of the, the Bernard, all of Bernard's letters. I didn't get the feeling that he has and diaries of hers with her feelings written out. Um, if he did, they'd be in her book, in the book he wrote about her. Because her estate, her estate really got separated, didn't it? Because all the, 9,000 drawings and gouache are with the Landrigans and Olivier has the ledgers. Yeah, it's all really complicated. Uh, and there are people in between who own pieces, who sold them. And yeah, it's really complicated. And there were a bunch of lawsuits and quite complicated. But again, it seemed much more to do with the business aspects of it all than personal letters. Although Olivier does have a lot of her furniture and um, effects. And he sold, you know, a lot of them were sold at the auction, Sotheby's had an auction of her own personal designs and her own personal jewelry. And that's like one of the most, I write about this in the book, but one of the most beautiful pieces and really made me think is the lingette that she wore all the time that had a heart locket on it. And when you open the heart locket, 
on one side is her mother and on one side is Bernard Hurst, not her husband. That's particularly interesting. And that was that was sold. Why did Olivier inherit it all? Was he he was a descendant? No. And he didn't actually. So she left it all to a friend of hers and the apartment stayed intact. And that, there's a French word for it, ligaté, but that man died and his, whoever he left it to, thought, by then nobody knew what it was. She'd gone out of favor anyway. That man contacted Olivier and said, I found a lot of antiques. And Olivier was an antique dealer. I was wondering if you could help me look at them and help me figure out what they are. And Olivier went to this apartment thinking that he was going to see a lot of antiques and instead found this whole entire apartment filled with antiques, but also with the whole world of Belperon and started researching it and either bought it or was left it by that person. And why doesn't he release more of the ledgers? Well, nobody knows. There's a rumor that he either wants to write another book or he wants it made into a movie. And so he's he's holding on to it. I mean, he was really nice to me and he helped me a lot, but he didn't he didn't tell me any, you know, give me any personal information like that about why he wasn't letting more go and why he wouldn't answer, you know, certain questions. Did you hold the ledgers? No, no. I didn't. I didn't get to see them. By then we were in COVID. Oh, that's And annoying. I couldn't go to Paris. Yes, yes. Yeah. And you invent in the book this marvellous secret society. Can you tell us about that? The, the Midas Society, which should exist if it... Yes. <laughs> I invented them for the book before, for The Last Tiara, which is about the lost uh, Romanov Tiara. I invented the Midas Society for that book. And I'm writing about them again. I'll keep writing about them. But they're, it's a group of people. It's a good organization. It's made up of jewelers and, and dealers and auctioneers and antique dealers and anybody who buys and sells art and objects. And they agree that if anything comes across their desk that appears to be stolen, they will never sell it but they will do everything in their power to return it to who it belonged to. And uh, sort of like Robin Hoods uh, of jewelry and art and sculpture and coins. And so um, they're really fun. Their headquarters is in Cannes, and uh, they've been around for a really long time. And they're, they're semi-secret in that you're allowed to tell somebody that you belong. You can't talk about who else belongs. And most people have a signet ring that says MS on it, which happens to be the initials of my legal name. But I don't have the signet ring, but I, I want to have it made by somebody so I can wear it all the time. But um, I love them because they're, they're really good guys, but they're entrenched in mystery and suspense. And uh, they're just determined to protect beautiful objects. Yeah, it's great. Well, I look forward to more of their adventures in the next book. Thank you. <laughs> I have actually um, spoken with um, Nico Landrigan about the part where Suzanne is taken by um, the Nazis to the Nazi headquarters, Avenue Fogg. And there is these stories about how she had to eat pages in her ledger books of Jewish clients' names so the Nazis wouldn't get hold of it and um, wouldn't have their information and addresses. And obviously you allude to that in the book. Did you try and find whether that was true or not? Was there any fact basis in that story? Well, Nico thinks it's true and Olivier thinks it's true. And there 
are so few stories about Suzanne Belperon that it seems unlikely that it's not true because nobody's made up a lot of other stories. You know what I mean? It's yes, like if, yes. if her life was like one big story and there were like 50 stories, you wouldn't know which ones were true or not. But so much of what she did was to protect the Jews and to protect her lover and to save her lover. And she worked so hard with her friends to try to get him out of once he'd been taken prisoner by the Nazis. I mean, she actually did get him out the first time and did not get him out the second time. And he wound up dying in Auschwitz, which she didn't know at the time. She didn't find out for, for quite a few years. But there was no reason to suggest that it wasn't true. So Olivier, can he see any pages cut out of the ledger books? Oh, I, I didn't ask him that. We'll have to ask him that. <laughs> We've got to ask him yeah. that and see, because that might verify it. Um, but you can imagine, of course, she would have done everything in her power to stop that happening. And, and actually, the fact that everybody said, told me about that story and everybody believed that story was one of the things that gave me impetus to have her do what, what I have her do in my book that we don't know. Because if she was willing to eat the pages, to go up against the Nazis, to hide people in her in-law's apartment, then the thing I have her do is not even that brave, you know, consider, considering the other things she did. So I really took a lot of inspiration from, from those pages and the fact that she ate those pages. And that's actually how we start the book, is in the scene where she winds up having to eat those pages. Yes, and you describe how difficult it was. must have been if you're trying to swallow 30 pages. I mean, that's really hard. Well, that was, that was like, nobody talked about that. And when I started writing it, I ripped a piece of paper out of a French notebook and ate it to see what it was like. And it was like, oh my God, I can't believe she kept doing this. The story is that she did it the whole way from her atelier to Avenue Fauche, which was a 20 minute, I mean, this is the fun stuff, right? I mean, you know exactly where she was and where she went. So you can Google map it and you can find out how long it would take in traffic and not in traffic and kind of split the difference. She was in that car for at least 20 minutes. So for 20 minutes, she was chewing paper. Amazing. And hiding it. And it is brave. It is brave because you must freeze with terror at the time when they walk in and take you. Totally freeze. So it's kind of quick thinking, brave, defiant, everything that you read that people in the resistance were. And I guess it was very, it put people in such difficult positions in luxury in Paris at the time because uh, they had to deal with the Nazis. And I imagine if Nazis had come to her to request commissions, she would have had to make them. Yeah, well, I did a lot of research with a lot of people who were living in France during the time, reading a lot of books that were first-person accounts of what it was like to be someone who decided to stay in France and be in the resistance. Tons of research. And yeah, you had to do certain things to stay alive. And she would not have been able to turn anyone down, especially because her entire goal and everything she cared about was keeping Bernard hers safe. I mean, it's why she bought the company from him, was to protect the company for him. I mean, he was a Jewish diamond dealer, you know, gem dealer. And he was such a target. The Nazis, you know, were all about, obviously, money and imprisoning Jews and other people that they found objectionable. And so 
they wanted people, art dealers, I mean, there were lots of art dealers that they did this to also, to try to get the names of the Jews who bought the paintings so they could go to their houses and take the paintings. And they went to jewelers to get the names of the Jews who had the bigger diamonds so they could get the diamonds. So she was so determined, and her niece talked about this, it was such an enormous part of her life during those years. It, basically, anybody... I, I spoke to um, an amazing man named Christopher Walling, who is a jeweler who's in New York, who actually might be one of the few people left in the world who actually sat down with Suzanne Valperon before she died and talked to her about her life. And he spent quite a few hours with her. And he also talked about her presence. And I got a lot of that quiet you know, elegance from him. But he talked about his mother had been in Ravensbrück and survived and, and it affected her for the rest of her life. But Christopher talked to me a lot about what her mother said it was like to be in Paris at the time. And a line that I've read now many times, but originally came from Christopher is if you were in Paris during World War II, you were either a Nazi or you were in the resistance. There was nothing in the middle. And there were a lot of people who left because they obviously a lot of art, millions of people left. But the people who stayed who were artists, there weren't a lot of them. I mean, Chanel left and Elsa Scaparelli stayed. She was a friend of Suzanne Belperon. She stayed. But other people left and the people, as I said, the people that stayed became major resistance, members of the resistance. So that was also made that part easier to imagine knowing that you couldn't get away from it. It wasn't like anything we have any idea of what that's like to live under to live under the thumb like that well maybe the ukrainians do at the moment i was thinking too as i was saying it the ukrainians yeah also you reference the fact that people who stayed also stayed for a responsibility for the people they were employing because if they were still working people in the workshop worked and i like the fact you even referenced the fact that her nails were always perfect because she kept her manicurist busy because her manicurist would have had a family to support. Yeah, and and her masseuse and her the person who she worked out twice a week. I was really lucky. There was an article, uh, I don't remember now whether it was Vogue or Bazaar, did with her at some point interviewing her where they listed what mascara she used, the color of her nail polish, the color of her lipstick. It was just the most amazing article because it gave me this wealth of detail, like what, how she washed her face, what cream she used. It was just a an article about, you know, the beauty regime of this woman. It gave me so much insight into her. And then you think about her in her atelier with these amazing clients, you know, everyone from Fred Astaire to uh, the Duke of Windsor coming to her atelier, working with these people, she had to have a certain personality and also a look where she felt comfortable with these people and also didn't compete with them. I mean, one of the things I love that Christopher told me is that she dressed for her jewelry. She favored Balenciaga and uh, Madame Grey, but she wore very simple clothes so that she could highlight her jewelry, which I love that too. That was a great little insight into how she dressed. That's so like Paloma Picasso, you know, who used to wear Saint Laurent and um, was always in bright colours and flamboyant clothes. And then once she became a jewellery designer, she just wore black. Uh -huh. She said, I want a plain backdrop for my jewellery. I didn't know that. That's great. I thought I liked also that even in the depths of the war, with all of this raging terror around them, 
Bernard and Suzanne would still get lost in the magical brilliance of a stone and look at its steps and get carried away and have a sort of moment's relief from the wall. That came from very much from reading these firsthand accounts of what it was like for people who were living there. It was very hard for me to get it into my head because, you know, all the cafes, lots of cafes are open and there's lots of food on the black market for the Nazis it, it, because the Nazis wanted Paris to be Paris. Those Nazis who were living in Paris very much wanted the food and the wine and the women and they wanted, they didn't want Paris to stop being Paris. So you could go to restaurants if you had the money and you could have the kind of meal you expected to have before the war. It was very hard for me to wrap my head around that dichotomy of life that you knew what was going on here, but you know, it was, there was still reality and still the Paris that you knew about over here. That was that was really interesting. What I also like the, the how you referenced um, that she was a female designer and how unusual that was at the time. And if I quote the book, it's you have um, one of the characters saying, "No designer before her was as innovative, and I doubt there will be again." Maybe Madame Peretti, who now works for Tiffany, so Elsa Peretti. So you you really feel that she was a master jeweler, one of the few women, and maybe Elsa Peretti has been as well because she's changed the way women have wear jewelry. Yeah, you know, um, spending a lot of time with the jewelry was important, and I grew up in the seventies when Elsa Peretti. You know, that was like my first piece of jewelry that my mother ever got me was a pair of Elsa Peretti. Is Elsa Peretti heart? From Tiff, you know, we went to Tiffany's and got it, and I really felt that Suzanne Belperon was as courageous as a jeweler as she was in the Resistance. It was actually her courageousness as a jeweler that made me think she would also be that courageous in the Resistance because she broke so much ground and she did so many things that had never been done before and drove her workshop crazy coming up with ideas. Well, like the carving of the stones of the quartz yeah. and the, the shapes, very curved and rounded. and Yeah, sensual shapes that people had never seen before and putting the stones together in color combinations that were really very unusual and even more important, using stones people weren't using. I mean, she wasn't just using diamonds, rubies, emeralds, and sapphires. I mean, she was the first major jeweler who started using, you know, turquoise and quartz and topaz and all different color, um, the chalcedony and the chrysoface and all these agates. This wasn't fine jewelry before Suzanne Belperon. And she took, you know, quartz and she'd stick a diamond in it. I mean, there's a great story that's true. Um, you know, she made all these fabulous carved rings and put fabulous stones in them. And then women would go to the opera and the ballet and, and plays and they'd clap their hands and the back of the rings would crack. And there was a bowl in her um, atelier of, so the women would bring the rings back. They couldn't be repaired. So Suzanne Belpont would take out the stone and make a new ring. And then that skeleton, that carved piece of agate or quartz would go into a big bowl. And there's just a big bowl of like a, like a cemetery of broken rings <laughs> in her atelier. And she, but she kept making them even knowing that they were going to break. 
and women kept buying them even knowing they were going to break. That, that, that's just so fascinating. Now, you've researched so much about Fabergé's workshop and Suzanne Belperon. Where would you have liked to have worked if you were working for one of them? I would have wanted to work for her, for Suzanne Belperon. Absolutely, yes. Would you? Fabergé wouldn't have been, I mean, I would have loved that, that my family was from St. Petersburg and uh, was there at the time of Fabergé. My great-great-grandfather, my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather took care of the clocks in the Tsar's palace before he left. I'm, I'm not sure, quite sure who left to come to America, but so I certainly would have loved to have been um, in both places. But if I had to just pick one, it would definitely be Belle Perel. Because? Well, because I'm just such, I, I just think as a designer, she's just so astonishing and she's so enigmatic. And I would just love to know, be able to ask her questions and see her design things and get to wear them. Mm. And, you know, you would have been one of many in the Fabergé workshop. I think she, she was a much tighter yes, community, true. <laughs> wasn't she? I mean, he had yes. what, um, 400 goldsmiths or something oh, working for him. Oh, he had, yes, he had many, many people that worked for him. And there were some women, but she she didn't. I mean, she she was alone. She didn't have other designers. It was just her. And then she had two two workshops. And people who also cut stones. So it was a very small operation. And I'm going to quote the book one more time because I feel this must be what you think about your personal view about jewellery. When you said things keep us company too, they keep our memories alive when everyone else has forgotten and moved on. Yes, I do. That is very much so. Yeah. I have pieces that were my mother's and, you know, my gra my, my mean grandmother's. And I have my great grandmother's. I have some costume jewelry from her. I do think, you know, it's so sad to lose people and time and lose times and um, as time marches on, but you have these pieces that are remnants of those places. And they're pieces that you can hold and wear close to you as opposed to something that's on a wall. You know, but I can like I always wear my mother's ring and I can I can touch it, you know, all the time. So it's very, very personal. I also think that they're talismans and amulets and i think that they they keep us company and they give us strength when we need it thank you that's beautiful that's exactly what i think about jewelry too there's something special about it more than any other object that we inherit as you say it's so personal well even the very name of your podcast is that which is why i've always loved because <laughs> they do they can talk and they do talk all the time Yes, well, yours must be very vocal while you're writing books. <laughs> Thank you so much, NJ, for sharing that with us and for doing that research on our behalf. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a joy talking to you. Thank you for listening. For this and other episodes of If Jewels Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwilton.com slash podcasts. Please share it any way you can. And if you've enjoyed it, we love to have a rating and a comment. So thank you. For more information on our sponsors, that's fooliegemstones.com. Join me again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget. Having heard how jewellery designers can be included into novels, in two weeks' time, we will hear the real true story about the great master jeweller, Suzanne Belperon. So please join me then. And in the meantime, send in any questions 
On our website or on Instagram at carolwilton.com, you can direct message me. Because the final episode that we're working towards of season five is going to be a free-for-all. Ask any questions you want about any of the seasons and the episodes that we've had or any questions about jewellery that you'd like me to answer. And that will be our last episode of season five. So I look forward to hearing from you and join us again in two weeks. And in the meantime, thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. If Jewels Could Talk with Carol Woolton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Lavanda. You can find our sponsors at foolygemstones.com and me at carolwilton.com.